What a joy it is to celebrate Christ with you today and this week and in the weeks to come. And to facilitate our worship, I'd like you to take your Bibles, please, and turn with me to the book of Luke. Look at verses 26 to 45 this morning. Uh, Luke, beginning verse 26. And this is actually opening up a little mini-series that we're doing on Christmas and celebrating Christ at Christmas. Surprise, right? Like we have to preach <laughs> on celebrating Christ at Christmas. But it is a battle that we will happily fight. So I'll be preaching um, chapter 1, verses 26, uh, more exactly, to verse 38 today. And then our pastoral apprentice, Joseph Darwin, will be preaching for us next week the following passage, Mary's Magnificent at Luke chapter 1, verse 46. And then I'll follow that up with something that is not going to be rooted in one text like normal, but uh, in a few. We've spoken much recently about trying to celebrate and enjoy Christ, and one of the common questions that I get is, how? What does that look like day to day? So I'm actually going to do a message at the beginning of the year on what it looks like for us to treasure Christ from day to day um, in the scriptures and in prayer and through the church and what that looks like. So the next three weeks will be a little different, and then we'll get back into the book of Philippians. Is that okay with everybody? I hope so, because I don't have any other plan. <laughs> this is all we got. <laughs> all right, uh, Luke 1, 26, familiar text, but let's, let's read it together, hear it as if it was the first time. In the sixth month, the angel Gabriel was sent from God to a city of Galilee named Nazareth, to a virgin betrothed to a man whose name was Joseph of the house of David, and the virgin's name was Mary. And he came to her and said, Greetings, O favored one, the Lord is with you. But she was greatly troubled at the saying and tried to discern what sort of greeting this might be. And the angel said to her, Do not be afraid, Mary, for you have found favor with God. And behold, you will conceive in your womb and bear a son, and you shall call his name Jesus. He will be great and will be called the Son of the Most High. And the Lord God will give to him the throne of his father David. And he will reign over the house of Jacob forever. And of his kingdom there will be no end. And Mary said to the angel, How will this be since I'm a virgin? And the angel answered her, The Holy Spirit will come upon you. And the power of the Most High will overshadow you. Therefore, the child to be born will be called Holy, the Son of God. And behold, your relative Elizabeth in her old age has also conceived a son, and this is the sixth month with her who was called barren. For nothing will be impossible with God. And Mary said, Behold, I am the servant of the Lord. Let it be to me according to your word. And the angel departed from her. I realize that Christmas is only five days away, but it wasn't until yesterday that my wife and I were able to complete any Christmas movie of the entire season. <laughs> In fact, we finished one that we started earlier in the week and then finished another. We just got on a roll. The, the, the gifts were wrapped. The other stuff that needed to be done for the things we're going through right now was done. And so we had uh, two offerings last night to enjoy. One was the newly animated Grinch movie uh, with Benedict Cumberpatch as the voice of the Grinch. And then the second was just the classic Charlie Brown Christmas it's an interesting thing to watch those two back-to-back -back because they serve for quite a contrast. In fact, my son, at the end of the, the second movie, actually says, Dad, that was interesting. This is the only movie I've ever seen that tells the true meaning of Christmas. <laughs> and he's right, there is one more. Depending on what somebody does to Charles Dickens' A Christmas Carol, that really is the only one that's out there. We're, we're left with Charlie Brown. <laughs> and then everything else is indeed something else. And friends, this is actually by design. 
the man known as Dr. Seuss. I always mispronounce his last name, so if you're from like Norway or something and you want to correct me afterward, you can. But I pronounce it Ted Geisel. <laughs> Ted Geisel, who is known as Dr. Seuss, uh, intentionally wanted to design a cartoon that would exclude religious themes. He says in his biography that this particular story came to him more easily than anything he ever wrote, except for the ending. He couldn't figure out how to end the thing without some kind of like religious emphasis. And so he, he finally gets it done with uh, avoiding what he called the thousands of religious choices. He explains that after three months it came out like it did. Then in 1966, he was given the option to do this again because he was going to expand the 10-minute book into a 60-minute movie. And so he had to think once more, like if, if he wanted to introduce any religious themes and working with his animator, he successfully avoided anything like that. Uh, the, uh, the animator recalls the, the conversation. He says, uh, Geisel didn't want, at the end of the movie, a, a star coming down from the sky, so... Instead, I had it come from the hearts of the people of Whoville. He didn't even want it to look like a star. <laughs> Seuss also wrote uh, the song lyrics, right, that were there in that ending movie, Welcome Christmas. And here's where his meaning of Christmas is found. It's all about the self and the community. You'll remember these lines. Christmas Day will always be just as long as we have we. There's Christmas. It's in us. That's where the star comes from. That's where the magic is. That's who the Savior is. That's what we celebrate. Uh, Scholes, on the other hand, right around the same time, 1965, does something totally different. You know the story. Charlie Brown is moping around trying to figure out what Christmas is all about. He thinks it's too commercial, but he doesn't have a real answer. And then the answer finally comes for him at the school play in which, after they've made fun of his little Christmas tree, uh, Linus actually says, Charlie Brown, I can answer your question. <laughs> and then he proceeds to read uh, portions of Luke 2, or to quote them. Sorry if I spoiled the movie for you. <laughs> but <laughs> Charlie Brown does find the true meaning of Christmas. And the history of this is, is fan, uh, fascinating because uh, they knew that this would be, even in 1965, something that was objectionable. The illustrator and the producer both tried to convince Scholes not to put this in, uh, even up to the final moments. And so the producer and animated insisted on taking out the explicit New Testament uh, reference, and then uh, one of them replied, it's very dangerous for us to start talking about religion now. And Scholes answered him by saying, Bill, if we don't, who will? <laughs> and so we get the contrast. Uh, a meaning of Christmas rooted in self or a meaning of Christmas rooted in a Savior? It seems to be like the major theme of every Christmas movie that I know. Now let's just keep in mind, I don't know Hallmark Christmas movies. By the way, Somebody, I won't say who, texted me last Sunday afternoon to inform me that there is indeed sequels to Hallmark Christmas movies. But I would say to that publicly, that one movie that you quoted is the exception that proves the rule. <laughs> but the normal Christmas movie, it's all about the same thing. What's this season about? We need the real meaning of Christmas. As if nobody knows. I mean, there's the obvious answer of what Christmas is not about and how it becomes a hollow holiday. Evidenced by Lucy going around writing the meaning of Christmas being getting gifts and stuff. And it seems like the moral self-righteous American, they've got that thing nailed. They understand that, of course. I mean, that's what like, everything is teaching. It's not about the gifts. It's not about the presents. It's not about the experiences. It's not about the stuff. So what's it about? It's about family. It's about giving. <laughs> it's about love. 
even in the answer to the purported problem, it's still about us. It's about humans. It's about what we do. And then you stumble across a little Charlie Brown cartoon. And really, it doesn't expand upon anything. I'm grateful that Luke 2 is quoted, but it just says it's about the birth of Jesus. Well, what, what's that about? So what? So what? Jesus was born. So what? That, that there was this baby. That's the question that we need to answer. If we really want to capture what we're trying to celebrate in these days, even though we don't have to celebrate it only in these days, sorry, another spoiler alert, this is not necessarily like when Jesus was born. If shepherds were out in the flocks by night, it probably wasn't wintertime. Just a heads up. But it was a convenient time to celebrate the holiday because the Romans were worshiping Saturn already on this particular day and everybody was off anyway and the Christians were like, hey, we've already got the day off. Let's use this as a time to worship Jesus. Now, I hope that doesn't spoil your holiday. But we do need to keep in mind that they were trying to set a tradition that would lead us to celebrate something significant. And the significance isn't obviously getting gifts, and the significance isn't giving gifts or just family. The significance isn't even just the birth of Jesus. It's actually something more than even that. And Luke invites us to consider it. Friends, I think that we know the facts about what's going on at Christmas, but we don't really know the significance of what's happening in this moment. Because of all the other stuff going on, and I'm not going to preach against parties or movies or anything of that nature, but I will say, because of all the other stuff that captures our attention we fail to grasp significance. I think that the normal Christian experience at this time of year is like a teenager standing in front of the Grand Canyon looking at their smartphone playing Candy Crush. There's something amazing there, and they know it, but they're captivated by something so much smaller. It'd be like someone hiking through like an open forest with a trickling brook and birds singing around and the, the, the murmur of a stream and they have in their earbuds listening to rock music. Nothing necessarily wrong with the music, but why not hear what's superior? Something that you can't find anywhere else. So Luke here invites us to take out the earbuds, to put down the smartphone, and to see what is actually significant, to hear the, the good news as if it was the first time. Contextually, Luke isn't writing to 21st century Christians uh, overwhelmed by uh, a commercialized holiday. But he is writing to an individual who has heard that there is an amazing story that has taken place, that this Jesus has come and that he existed and that he claimed to be the Son of God and that he rose again. Like there, this Theophilus, this man to whom the, the, the letter or the account is written, he, he understands that something happened. And you know what Luke's doing? He's actually trying to confirm for this guy, I know it seems too good to be true, but I promise it actually happened. And here's the details. That's the whole point. He is confirming something that seemed too overwhelming and amazing. And Luke, by occupation, is a physician. You kind of count on those guys to be detailed and accurate and thorough. And so he lays out an orderly account, the longest of all the Gospels, and then he follows it up with a sequel in the book of Acts to show how this risen Christ would continue to work in the ministry of the Holy Spirit, and he spares no detail in trying to captivate us with the significance of the arrival of what is called throughout his Gospel and through Acts, the Son of God. He's actually a literary genius in some ways. When you look at Luke 1, it's long, right? You've got 80 verses. <laughs> Put that in your Bible memory plan. Go for it. Luke 1. You're not going to get as much credit. But it is a ton. And the thing that we naturally ask ourselves as we approach this text, I think, is this. 
why don't we, why does he talk about John the Baptist? What's the deal with that? Like, why don't we just focus on Jesus? Have you noticed that if you ever try to read Luke 1 and 2, you're like, wow, they really like John the Baptist. <laughs> Luke is actually doing something pretty amazing, especially for his first century reader slash readers. I think more people read it than Theophilus, of course. He's referencing known events in human history that they would have been familiar with, especially if they had any exposure to Judaism. And he's going to point out how stupendous and amazing those events are, and then he's going to show how superior the Christ event was. So, for example, Jews would have known that God worked in miraculous, supernatural ways through the prophets. And it had been 400 years since any validated prophet had spoken. And so when you read the beginning of Luke 1, you're seeing like, oh, God is at work again in that special way that he used to be at work. I mean, we've got an angelic pronouncement. We've got a miraculous birth. We've got a guy who's going to come and prepare the way of the Lord like the prophets of old were supposed to do. I mean, like you look at all this and you're like, yeah, God's at work again. This is amazing. And you know what it feels like? It feels like the Old Testament. It feels at home. You're like, yeah, this is the way God worked in the Old Testament. And then he's going to interject and weave in the story of the Son of God and his arrival, and you're going to see, whoa, <laughs> we ain't in Kansas anymore. This isn't the Old Testament. What is happening here is unprecedented. It is superior. So you should read the John the Baptist account and be blown away like, wow. And then you read the Jesus account and you're speechless. For those of you who are kind of literary nerds and you like this kind of thing, let me just point out a few of the intentional contrasts between John the Baptist's and Jesus' birth. John was great in the sight of the Lord, verse 15, but Jesus is presented as unqualified great in verse 32. Whereas John is later described as a prophet of the Most High, in verse 76, Jesus is the Son of the Most High. Whereas John's birth was miraculous and had Old Testament parallels, right? Like you had a, a barren woman giving birth. Jesus' birth was even more miraculous. John's conception was like that of Isaac and Samson and Samuel. But Jesus' conception was absolutely unique. Nothing like this had ever happened in redemptive history. It was not just quantitatively greater, greater it was qualitatively different. So back and forth, you're going to see the comparison of these two, and you're going to realize, hey, what's happening here is amazing. And so it is to this orderly account of the conception of Jesus that we now turn. And it is indeed, by the way, the conception of Jesus. His birth will be mentioned at another time. But I, I want to tell you the story again, and, and I'm not going to give you a lot of headings. Just listen. If you listen carefully, you'll have stuff you'll be able to write down. But ultimately, I want us to be able to reflect on the significance of what Luke portrays here so as to capture our hearts again for the true significance of the arrival of the Christ. It begins with a humble context. Notice verses 26 and 27. It says, In the sixth month, the angel Gabriel was sent from God to a city of Galilee named Nazareth. It's a very humble beginning to this story of Mary. We don't know her at all. She hasn't been introduced, and it even is telling it in the context of that other story. When it says, for example, in your text, in the sixth month, what do you think it's talking about? The sixth month of what? The sixth month of the year? No. It just previously was talking about Elizabeth conceiving and being six months pregnant. And so here, it's talking about the sixth month of Elizabeth's birth, I mean, Elizabeth's uh, conception. And it says, and during that time, while she's pregnant, an angel, the angel Gabriel, who was in the, the previous account, is sent from God. Now, I don't know, like, how this works, but I, somehow, angels are dispatched from heaven. The, the word angel literally means messenger. So for all the things that you think that angels do, from watching, well, not, you know, not watching, but from entering a Hallmark store, <laughs> you think, man, this guy really has something against Hallmark. <laughs> no, no, seriously, like the normal conception of an angel is like nobody really knows what they do. They just kind of like float around and look cute. But in the scriptures, 
angels were authoritative ambassadors from God. And so Gabriel, by the way, whose name means warrior of God, is dispatched from heaven again to deliver an even more unique message than the one that he just delivered. But there's a contrast again, and it's weird, and you're thinking, oh, this story is going to be an anticlimax. Like, it's not going to be that cool. You know, the sequel's never as good as the original. You're thinking like, oh, yeah, yeah, I know this story, and you're thinking this one's going to be boring because instead of going to Jerusalem, the capital of Israel, where do they go? To Nazareth. (laughs) I mean, Nazareth is a town that is smaller than what you could possibly imagine. I mean, people think that I guess Immokalee is a small town. I assume that thousands of people live there. The little town I grew up in is called Belvoir. It's not even a town. It's called a township. And I think it's thousands of people. This is smaller than that. I mean, when you look on the annals of history, you can barely find it. And the best that they can do is figure that scores or maybe hundreds of people lived here at the most. So it's a pretty humble beginning. Instead of Jerusalem, he's going to Nazareth. And then listen to this. Instead of going to a priest, someone in the priestly line in the temple at Jerusalem, where does he go this time? It says he goes to a virgin, betrothed to a man whose name was Joseph. She doesn't even get a name mentioned yet. She is mentioned in connection to her espoused. I say espoused. For those of you who have been in church for a long time, you know that betrothal is something that is a little more than our modern-day engagement, a little less than our modern-day marriage. It's legally married, but not physically consummated. It was like a year-long process. But what you need to catch is that Mary is portrayed here, again, in anticlimax faction. Like, she is not considered to be this stunning star. Ladies, I don't mean to be offensive, but I think I'd need to honestly explain just the patriarchal nature of the first century world. Uh, An unmarried young woman in that particular society, in some Jewish accounts, is viewed as little better than a beast of burden. You should be shocked. It was horrible. At that particular time, Because she was just a servant in the house. She didn't bring any value. Notice in the Old Testament, it seems that they would rejoice over the birth of a what? A son. (laughs) If a girl was born, it was like, great, that's more help. The dad's thinking, I'm going to have to pay pay to have someone marry her. I mean, I'm not saying this was the biblical view. I'm saying that this was the world's view at that particular time. She was, when we talk about of humble and low estate, gentle Mary, meek and mild, we're talking about something that is not valued. She's not valued. And you would look at this and say, why does a virgin who's not even married yet to anyone of any significance in a small town somewhere get this type of reception? Why, why does she get an angel? It eventually gives us her name. It says that she's married to uh, Joseph, who was of the house of David. This will be significant because we know that David is the king of Israel par excellence from the past, and this guy's in that line, but the virgin's name, it says, was Mary. And so there's this humble context here, and, and it's followed by an astounding announcement, an astounding announcement. It's the next movement of the story. So, What happens here is the angel shows up and says to her, Greetings, verse 28, O favored one, the Lord is with you. Now, this is a pretty interesting greeting. I mean, greetings just means like, hey, hello, you know, that kind of thing. But I want you to note something. He calls her not the virgin. He calls her not Mary by her first name. He calls her favored one. The word here is the same word that's translated in other places in the New Testament for grace. Mary, you who have experienced grace, grammar note, it's passive, it's not active. So the Roman Catholic conception of Mary as one who is a possessor of grace, as a fountain of grace, is wholly inaccurate based just on the grammar of the text. It is not presenting her as a source of grace, but as a receptacle. Mary, you to whom God has shown grace, 
Think less like a fountain, more like a bucket. God has taken you and he has shown grace to you already in some way. It says, the Lord is with you. Now this is a scary statement because any time in the Old Testament where the scriptures say that the Lord is with someone, something radical is about to happen. <laughs> Typically it means that God is going to empower someone in a supernatural way, uh, pardon the expression, but to kick butt and take names. Like, it's a, it's a military thing. It's where God would empower somebody to do some type of mighty, redemptive work. And Mary's thinking, knowing her Old Testament, what? <laughs> you're with me? This doesn't just mean like, oh, Mary, you're sad and lonely, and I'm going to be with you. No, that's, again, the, the greeting card version of the story. When God is promising his special presence, it is either to provide, but most often to protect. And he's saying, all right, Mary, I'm going to use you in a great way, which makes sense. A why, by the way, in verse 29, she is like freaked out. She says, verse 29, she was greatly troubled at the saying and tried to discern what sort of greeting this might be. I mean, most of us read that in verse 28 and we're thinking like, what's Mary's problem? What's she so disturbed about? You know, God's with her. No, what's going on here is God's going to be with her in a special way to like empower her to do some type of redemptive act. She's scared to death. It's kind of like your draft number coming up. <laughs> it's like 400 years of silence and she gets drafted. And so she's like, what are you saying? You know, she's, she's actually, <laughs> she's such a detailed person. She's not concerned about uh, the fact that an angel is before her. She's that devout. She knows that God can work in miraculous ways. She's more concerned about what the angel said. It says what sort of greeting this might be. So the angel clarifies. He says, hey, look, uh, don't be afraid, Mary. Verse 30. For you found favor with God. This is going to be good. And, and notice this again. You have found favor with God. Not you've always possessed favor with God. <laughs> but God is giving you favor. The, the word found, by the way, is the same one that's used in the Old Testament. To talk about Noah, for example, finding grace in the eyes of the Lord. Uh, the Greek word I think you'll find fascinating. It's eurisko. Eurisko. Sound familiar? Eureka. When somebody says, Eureka, what, that was the popular exclamation in the gold rush that somebody has struck it rich. It means that you found something. Sometimes it conveys that you found it and you were actually looking for it, like I do probably five times a week when I'm looking for my keys. And sometimes it implies that you found something when you weren't expecting it, like if you've ever found $20 laying on the ground. Contextually here, it isn't as if Mary was seeking God's special favor in this way. This is an out-of-the-blue bolt of grace that has struck her. She has discovered grace in a special way. God has poured out his favor on her. In what way, verse 31, it says, And behold, here's how it's going to happen. This is why God has shown you grace, or how God has shown you grace. You will conceive in your womb and bear a son. And you shall call his name Jesus. Now this is getting interesting. She's going to have a baby. Something about what the angel has said has, has given her the impression that this is going to happen imminently and not in the context of marriage. You're going to see this in a moment. But both the statement, by the way, that you have found grace and that you are the one who has received grace are past tense statements in the original language. The implication is that this thing is already beginning to happen. So I want you to get what's going on here. Mary is interpreting this not as like, oh, cool, I'm going to have a baby one day when I get married. She's thinking something amazing is about to happen right now, and this thing is going to be pretty mind-blowing. First of all, she's going to conceive, she's going to give birth, and she's going to name the child Jesus. Now, Jesus isn't too actually uncommon of a name in that time, but it does have some special significance. It means Jehovah or Yahweh saves. There's this indication and in names, again, significant in this time period. Like my name, for example, Justin means justice. Why does it mean that? I don't know. My parents randomly decided to name me that. We don't assign value to names, but in the Old Testament context, if you were assigned a name, it was supposed to predict 
or unveil something about you. So she's getting an idea that maybe this is going to be some type of savior type, and then the lid just gets blown off this thing. Look at verse 32. He continues, and he, this Jesus that you will give birth to, will be great. He will be great. So yeah, I think my kids are great too. No, (laughs) that's not what he's talking about. Greatness, unqualified greatness like this in the Old Testament is that which was spoken of covenant heads. Remember the promise to Abraham? He says, I will make you great. Remember what he said to David in the Davidic covenant? I will make you great. Here is what he's saying about this Jesus. I will make him great. He will be great. And notice this, if you need more clarity, he will be called the Son of the Most High. The Son of the Most High. Now, I'm going to take a little time out for a second, (laughs) and I need to explain something theologically. Don't worry, we'll we'll jump back in. But friends, we need to be careful to try to read the text the way the original audience would. I know what we think immediately when we see Son of the Most High. We're like, oh, there's proof. There's this Jesus who is indeed ontologically the Son of God. But if you were in the Psalms class this morning, you would know and be reminded that the title Son of God, or Son of the Most High, didn't always immediately convey divine equality, divine essence. Don't worry, I'm not going to undermine our Christology here five days before Christmas. I just want us to understand the way the Old Testament reader would have understood this text. I'll give you two examples of how this is. The first is in the Davidic covenant itself, 2 Samuel chapter 7, verse 14. Who's he speaking to? David. And what does he say about David? He says, you're going to have descendants and I will adopt them as my son. And you know it's a human son, like it's going to be a human ruler because he says, and when he sins, I will chastise him. The same thing will be repeated in the Psalms. David knew this to be true. Uh, Psalm chapter 2, verse 7, I will surely tell of the decree of the Lord. He said to me, you are my son, today I have begotten you. Again, this is referring to the Davidic ruler. You look at Psalm 2, the Jew isn't thinking, oh, this is the son of God. It's talking about someone in special relationship to the father. A, a divine ruler. It was a title. And the reason why you need to differentiate this, friends, because the text says that today I have begotten you. <laughs> you don't want your Jewish and Muslim friends to be thinking that, oh yeah, see, they gave me this Old Testament proof text that Jesus was the Son of God, and he became the Son of God because he was begotten. <laughs> God chose him at some point. That is not what's going on here. That the original title, what Mary would have heard here, is this is going to be the chosen prophetic Ruler, this is going to be the chosen Messiah. Psalm, Psalm 86 says it the same way. Let's just continue to follow the regal imagery here. Notice, time in, we're going back to the text. He says, he will be the son of the Most High, and the Lord God will give to him the throne of his father David. You see the ruling context here? He says, hey, he's going to be the son of the Most High. He's going to be recognized as the promised Davidic ruler. He's going to be given the throne of his father David. And notice the ruling language, verse 33. And he will reign over the house of Jacob forever, and of his kingdom there will be no end. What is Luke actually referring to here? He's referring to this child who is going to be the king that they had expected for so long. Now, friends, they did not know yet fully that this king would be divine. They just thought that he would be supernaturally enabled. We know the term Messiah, Christ, Christmas. <laughs> Christ, Messiah, is just the Hebrew word, Meshiach. It means anointed one. I mean, it, it is the, the idea of this One who would be anointed by the Holy Spirit, supernaturally empowered to take over the world. So they knew he would be divinely enabled, but they did not know that he would actually be divine. And so as Mary's listening to this, she's thinking, I'm going to give birth to the one that's going to be supernaturally enabled of God. She is thinking that she's going to give birth to the Christ who she does not yet know is divine. 
but it will become clear later in this text and later in the Gospel of Luke that this isn't just a supernaturally enabled Messiah. This will actually be a Messiah who is himself supernatural. (laughs) It is one who is divine. And the way that we have an indication of that is just right there in verse 33. He will reign over the house of Jacob forever, and of his kingdom there will be no end. How do you reign on the same throne forever if you're a human being? In previous communications of the Davidic covenant, it was always that the descendants would continue to reign forever. But here we see that there's going to be one who will reign forever. And Daniel 12, 2 made it clear that the Old Testament saints had a hope of resurrection from the dead. And so clearly there would be one who could conquer death and reign forever. This is amazing and astounding. And naturally it is confusing to Mary because she says in verse 34, look at it. This is the natural confusion. Mary said to the angel, how will this be since I am a virgin? Now, in contrast to Zechariah, who doubts the Lord, Mary trusts the Lord in this, but she just wants some more details. I think I know there's a lot of you in this church who are just like that. You don't mind where we're headed, you just want to know how we're going to get there. I mean, she's had a pretty glorious destiny laid out for her, and she doesn't mind that. She's not concerned about giving birth to the king. She's just kind of concerned about how she's going to get there. There. As indicated earlier, there's something about the way this angel had communicated with these present tense verbs of favor and grace gave Mary the impression that this was going to happen immediately. And so she's thinking, knowing just some basic biology, how is this going to happen? I mean, this this is the way the world works. And if this is supposed to happen now, and I'm not yet uh, consummated this marriage... And this child may be in some sense from God and not necessarily from Joseph. Notice there's no mention of Joseph. She's confused. She's confused by this. And she wants more clarity on how this is going to take place. Legally, she belongs to Joseph. But physically, how will this child come? Notice the supernatural explanation. The supernatural explanation, verse 35. And the angel answered, The Holy Spirit will come upon you. And the power of the Most High will overshadow you. That's how it's going to happen. God is going to intervene in a miraculous way and directly provide a child for you apart from normal human means. The angelic explanation is reminding us That this child would come not through sexual activity, but through divine agency. The impossibility of a a virginal conception indicates, hence, that this child is indeed divine. This had never happened before. It wasn't like when we look at Old Testament text and we think, oh, there was a barren woman, and she's like 80 years old, and she has a baby. You know, that's that's a purple unicorn, right? Like that's a pretty rare instance. Like you don't see those very often. They were already stunned by the conception of barren people giving birth. But they had no category, no category whatsoever for someone who had no sexual experience whatsoever giving birth. I mean, this is something that was ultimately unique. And how in the world did it come to pass? Well, friends, we need to be careful here. Not to say more than the text says, but the text does say something. Notice, the Holy Spirit in this particular passage is is the one who will actually come upon her. What does that mean? Well, in the Old Testament, the Holy Spirit would come upon the prophet Balaam to empower him to do something supernatural. Uh, You remember the story of Samson, the Holy Spirit would come upon him, and what would happen at that point? He would empower him to do something supernatural, in that case, defeating the Philistines and the lion. Uh, The same thing would happen to David in his transition of power. It says that the Holy Spirit would come upon him and enable him in a supernatural way to rule. And so here we see that same language, the Holy Spirit's going to come upon her. He's going to supernaturally enable her. 
The Old Testament scholar Jack Levinson reminds us in his Old Testament theology of the Spirit, this is a great reminder for those of you who just kind of forget about the work of the Spirit. He says, the Spirit, in short, was not yet tame in the annals of Israelite literature. Absent the creeds and long before Christians annexed philosophy to grasp the nature of the Spirit, Israel told stories of a mysterious presence that prompted remarkable feats in the public sphere. The comfortable constraints of later generations were not yet in place. This truth is untamed wilderness, not gardens but forest, not fields but plains. What he's saying is when you think of the Holy Spirit, you, you, we often have a muted conception of what he does. But the text says that when he radically invades, divine things happen. And that's exactly what happened here. The Holy Spirit came upon her. He enabled the impossible. And at the same time, the child would also be conceived as the Son of the Most High, through the power of the Most High. It says that the power of the Most High would overshadow her. This is the same verb that's used in the Old Testament to talk about the Shekinah cloud, like overdwelling or laying over the people, guiding them in the wilderness. It was a supernatural and radical invasion of God for the protection and provision of His people. That's what's going on here. And so, in light of that, we ask the question, and skeptics ask, even people who claim to be Christians have asked this. There was a movement, I guess it was in the 60s, called the Jesus Seminar, in which, you know, people tried to basically demythologize the Bible. And, and one of the things that they thought was the most, one of the most embarrassing, this is their term, embarrassing aspects of Christianity was the invasion of the supernatural. And so they would actually try to explain the Jesus story apart from anything supernatural. <laughs> and so in this particular case with the, the virgin birth, they would just say, well, she was a pure woman. She was a virgin up till the time that she gave birth. But this was actually uh, Joseph's son. Uh, but he was a good moral man, and we should follow his example. He was one who was crushed in the wheels and gears of history uh, but his spirit lives on. He was resurrected in spirit because his people still preach his message. Friends, uh, we do not need to help out a supernatural text. If an agnostic friend of yours would ever ask, how in the world is someone born of a virgin? The condescending question, do you know how these things happen? Uh, you can answer. Uh, a virgin gives birth in the same way that dust becomes man. Direct, immediate creation. The same God that cr directly created the fully human Adam and Eve, nobody thinks they were unhuman, apart from the womb, by the way, is the same God who produced the promised king and the virgin of Mary. For instance, that's the best I can say. But may we heed the words of John Calvin. Where God leaves off teaching, we remain silent. This is what we've got. The Holy Spirit radically invades. The power of the Most High overshadows. God enters human history, fully human, in the womb of a virgin. And what does it mean? The angel explains. He says, because he's going to come to you in this way, you need to understand that this child is different. He is holy. He is holy. And he is the son of God. Holy. Holy, it means to be without mixture, separate from. He is truly human, but he is utterly holy. He is separate from the sinful line, if you will, but still included in it physically through his mother. Because of the divine intervention here, we know that the child was holy. He wasn't just any other child. He wasn't like mixed in the, in the normal way, receiving some type of fallen human nature. But he's holy, and here, friends, is where you can lean in a little heavier on the text because it says he's holy, and he is, in light of this, the Son of God. 
You want to know why we can look at Psalm 2 and 2 Samuel 7 verse 14 and look back and say, oh, this is talking about the Messiah. (laughs) This is talking about the divine Son of God because of this, because of this very passage. It is here that the traditional understanding that I took such great pains to explain to you about 10 minutes ago is now infused with divine significance. It is now no longer just a title for a human and supernaturally enabled Messiah, but now it is at this point that we see because of his unique supernatural origin that this indeed is not just Son of God in title, but Son of God in essence, Son of God in truth, Son of God in reality. Mary is going to give birth not to just a human, powerful figure, but to one who is power incarnate himself. This is God's son, not Joseph. And friends, I would say in light of this that the virgin conception is not a a problem to be solved, but it is a truth to be praised. By the very fact that this thing is so unique and so out there, it is the exclamation point on Jesus as the Messiah. You know you could look up on Wikipedia today, Messiah claimants, and get a whole list of all the people through the last 2,000 years who have claimed to be the Messiah? None of them have a birth record like this. So Justin, how can I trust this? The same way Theophilus would trust this, by the way. You wouldn't be a credible physician writing an orderly account and then calling it fiction. He's saying to Theophilus, I know this sounds too good to be true, but I have questioned the sources. I have done the research. This is how it happened. And we know that this was indeed not just a son of God, a Messiah, but this was the son of God. And his resurrection is what ultimately would prove that the most. So this is hard to believe, but friends, we need to understand that we believe in a God who is supernatural. Super means above and beyond the natural order. He does that. But there's a reassuring sign here because it is hard to believe. So notice the reassuring sign. Uh, Verses 36 and 37. And behold, your relative Elizabeth in her old age has also conceived a son, and this is the sixth month with her who was called barren. For nothing will be impossible with God. I mean, there are no, no parallels here. It's kind of like when, when somebody says, you know, that something's impossible or something, you know, won't be able to happen. They say, yeah, this will happen when cows fly. Uh, you know, that we know that cows don't fly. Uh, what the angel is saying here is, hey, look, you know that this happens when uh, barren women conceive. We know that doesn't happen, but guess what? Just like it did in those climactic moments in Old Testament salvation history, it happened again. And here's the proof. Your relative, we don't know if it was her cousin or whatever, but your relative is six months pregnant. Go check it out. Why six months? Who cares about six months? Because six months, you ain't hiding nothing. It is evident. It is obvious. And so Mary is given something to see like, wow, God is indeed again doing the impossible. They knew that. They knew that from the Old Testament text. But it had been 400 years since God had done the impossible. I mean, if you read Jewish history, it actually is pretty fascinating between the periods of 400 B.C. to about this particular time. And you know what it is? It is, it is the, 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 the trying again and failing over and over effort of them trying to regain control. They cannot get their mess together. There was no more divine enablement. There were no more miracles. There was nothing amazing happening outside of them getting their rear ends beat every time they tried to clamor for control. And yet here... It seems that God, once more, after hundreds of years of silence, has done something impossible, and he said, just go, go check it out. Go see if she's six months pregnant. And remember, when you see it, God does the impossible. He defies the natural. He invades the ordinary with his special presence. He gives 
The angel gives her this assuring sign, and in light of that, we see her faithful response. Her faithful response in verse 38. It's so amazing. It's so humble. Mary said, Behold, I am the servant, literally the slave of the Lord. Let it be to me according to your word. And the angel departed from her. We may naturally wonder, why does she have to humble herself? Why doesn't she just do a fist bump and go in her way? She gets to be you know, uh, the mother of the Messiah. Well, this was going to cost Mary, right? Because if this was going to happen virginally, she now will forever be characterized as a woman of ill repute. I don't mean to be crass, but unfortunately, and I say this very sincerely, very unfortunately, that doesn't mean much in our culture. Whether or not a woman is pregnant before marriage. But here in this culture, we're talking about an offense that could be worthy of stoning. Mary says, okay, I, I'm honored and being unto, I am the slave of God. Whatever he wants to happen, may it happen. If you were, or if I would say this, if you're under the age of um, 25, I'm guessing here, you may not know the man I'm about to name. He, uh, he was a journalist, a reporter, um, won several awards in several different ways, but, but best known for his, um, his program that ran from 1985 to 2010 on CNN. It, it was their most watched program of all time, and it was Larry King Live. Uh, Larry King, he's still around. Uh, he's, a, he's a Jew by birth, and, and I, whether you like him or not, I would say he's a brilliant interviewer, arguably the best of all time. I mean, he made a killing off asking great questions. Back in 1990, I mean, like, he's, he's about to be at the pinnacle of, of his success. He's just getting really popular. People Magazine asked him, what is your fantasy interview? If you could interview anyone in the world, who would it be? Anyone in history? And you can guess the answer. This Jewish man says, if I could interview anyone in the world, it would be Jesus Christ. And so the reporter follows up and they said, okay, if you could only ask him one question, what would you ask? And he said, I would want to ask him if he was really virgin born. Why? And King adds, because this would make all the difference. If he's not virgin born, if he is just the premature love child of Joseph and Mary, history has been on an inescapable rabbit trail. Millions upon millions of people have been doing what we're doing right now for nothing. But if he is virgin born, if he is from the direct, immediate transmission of the Holy Spirit from the Father, this means that God has touched down in human history to provide the salvation that was longed for for millennia. I, 
if, if he is indeed virgin born, if he is truly from God and God himself incarnate, we actually have a savior. We have real rescue from all that ails us, especially death itself. This changes everything. What we're celebrating is that the true king has come and we're invited then to act accordingly. The reason why they keep making the same movies over and over and over again about why everybody gets so down around Christmas time and why they can't catch the true spirit of the season is because the self is nothing to celebrate. It's a hot mess. You put self in a position of sovereignty, and I'm telling you, it is a dumpster fire. You could see it over and over again, whether it be in microscopic ways, where you're trying to rule your own life, or whether it be with whole nations and kingdoms. Self-rule, self-salvation is not good news. You better just keep on making movies because nobody is ever going to buy into that message. But the scriptures give us something different. They give us that the good news isn't just that a baby has been born, but that a divine king has come. And I totally get it. I totally get it. Some of you sitting in this room right now could easily get a little squeamish because you're an American and you love democracy and you know that we actually send people around the world to defend said democracy. We think that the people rule. That's the best life. And you know what this is celebrating? A monarchy. <laughs> a divine monarchy. A king. A ruler. Who is God himself. And that, that bothers us. It bothers us in this life. But C.S. Lewis explains, I think, in a helpful way how we can get past this impasse because we know what it's like to have evil men rule totally. So Lewis actually explains why a democracy is good for a fallen world but not good for the world to come. Listen to his explanation. If you think it's bad news that, that Jesus is a totalitarian king, I get your political concerns, but let's walk through this together. He says, A great deal of democratic enthusiasm descends from the ideas of people like Rousseau, who believed in democracy because they thought mankind was so wise and good that everyone deserved a share in the government. The danger of defending democracy on those grounds is that they're not true. I find that they're not true without looking further than myself. I don't deserve a share in governing a hen roost, much less a nation. The real reason for democracy is mankind is so fallen that no man can be trusted with the unchecked power over his fellows. And so Aristotle said that some people were only fit to be slaves. I do not contradict him, but I reject slavery because I see no men fit to be masters. You know what he's saying? He says, ultimately, the reason why we reject any form of theocracy or monarchy, a rule of one, is because we have this natural assumption that we would do it better. And I'm telling you, you wouldn't. You don't. We don't. But you know what? Since we are in a fallen world right now, we do kind of need to spread it so that no one sinful person gets to be able to do everything that they want. But if there were a perfect, divine, holy ruler, what would that be like? That's what Christmas is celebrating. That a real ruler, one from God, has come, like the one who is God himself. He is ruling, and that is great news. That is great news for all of us. That is what we are celebrating, that we have the arrival of a king. We are not celebrating the we as in the song in the Christmas special, we are celebrating the He, the fact that God has intervened and He is restoring rule and reign. So Justin, how does He do that? It doesn't look like God is reigning. Have you looked at 2020 this year? Look, I totally get it. But let's just be clear. 
Jesus came the first time to secure and fix what counts, and that is securing the eternal souls of people who have rebelled against him. Like he entered into the human sphere and condition and showed, by the way, that he can rule and reign anything. He overcame death and disease and demons. Like, it's not just saying, oh, it's spiritual, trust me. He showed that he can do the physical. He overcame the physical. He conquered it through his own resurrection from the dead. But what was he doing first? He was remedying the self-rule and the hearts of people and the wrath of God that was rightfully being poured out on them on account of that. He was going to fix the spiritual problem. And so he comes, he rules, or evidences his rule, and then he is crucified, he is risen again, he ascends into heaven and says, all right, I will rule and reign over my people and through the church, but I will come and touch down, not just in a spiritual way, which is significant, but physically. I will physically return as I ascended, so I will descend, and I will fix all that ails us. Friends, I want you to know the good news is that this Christ came in to provide the spiritual rescue that we needed. I know you think coronavirus is bad, and I don't mean to be crass again, sorry, but hell's a lot worse. And Jesus came to remedy that. The eternal and rightful wrath of God that we deserved, he satisfied through his work on the cross, and he rose again showing that, you know what, this doesn't have to be our end destination. We can actually enjoy eternal physical life with him, as Paul has pointed to so many times. There's spiritual rule, but then there is also a real and actual and physical rule of King Jesus over this world that will happen at any moment. And I get it, it's by faith, but it is true, friends. We are so, at the end of this year, politically worked up. I saw a t-shirt the other day that said, the only thing worse than COVID-19 is Biden 20. Now, I'm sure, just in case somebody thinks that I have some type of political slant here, I do have clear opinions. Um, I'm sure some people felt that way about 2016. But the truth of the matter is, it can be 16, 20, 2024. I think we're always going to be moderately ticked off at whoever is ruling and reigning at the moment. They will never be good enough. This world is a train wreck. And I'm not trying to be pessimistic. I think that the the church has a place in the world. We can push back against the fallenness of this world and the curse of sin. And we can provide rescue in Christ to those who need it. But the ultimate solution still awaits us from the outside. It's it's going to be an invasion of the supernatural where God comes in once more in Christ to fix it. And so I I would say to you just very respectfully, just chill out. Just take it easy. He was on the throne in 2020, and he will be on the throne again in 2021. And don't worry, this isn't as good as it gets. He's coming with a more climactic expression of rule that will right all wrongs that you and I both perceive. What are we celebrating at Christmas? Not just eternal salvation in the present, as huge as that is, but also future salvation that he will provide. We often sing this time of year. We don't sing it. If you do sing it, I I, want to meet you afterward. But we listen to other people sing Handel's Messiah. You know what Handel's Messiah is? It's it's actually about, you think that it's just (laughs) that one little spot in the middle. (laughs) The thing is two and a half hours long. And it starts off with the prophecies of Jesus. It goes to his birth. And then it goes to his death on the cross. And then it follows his resurrection. And then after his ascension, right before he's going to return in the final movement, we get the climactic hallelujah chorus. Right? You remember those words, hallelujah for the Lord God omnipotent reigneth. The king of this world has become the kingdom of our Lord and his Christ, and he shall reign forever and ever, king of kings and lord of lords. 
I mean, it is jubilant. It is exuberant. I mean, like, it is the pinnacle of like musical joy in all of history. I don't know of anything higher. And you know what it's celebrating? Right now. It's celebrating right now as we're on the verge of his return in the next movement. The king has come. The divine ruler is, is here. And he is ruling spiritually and in a very real way in the hearts of his people and the church. And at any moment, he's going to exercise and open up this rule to the whole world. And so rejoice. <laughs> this is good. This is worth celebrating. So compare that. Uh, compare that with Christmas is here because of the we. <laughs> so empty. We're either celebrating self this Christmas or we're celebrating the divine Savior. And I, I would conclude by asking you this question. I'll give you some time to reflect on it. But in this, I'm asking you to put down the phone proverbially and take in the divine king. Take out the earbuds of all the other junk that's going on right now and listen again to the gospel and ask yourself this question. In what ways does my life reflect the arrival and the return of the true king? In what ways does my life in this moment reflect the arrival and the return of the true king? so much opportunity that's there. Would you consider with me what it would be like for us to celebrate, not just with Bible readings and church services, but in our lives every day that our King has indeed come. And He is indeed coming again. Let's bow our heads and close our eyes. And I'll give you a few moments of silence while I invite the magicians to come. In this, I just encourage you to silently pray and reflect are you rejoicing in the rule and the reign of Jesus? And if not, I would encourage you to take this time to repent of your sin, to rely upon Christ alone.